Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teamwork A Better Way podcast. I'm Christian Napier, and I am joined, as always, by the very effervescently dressed Spencer Horn. Spencer, how you doing? I am bubbling and so happy to be here with you, Christian, as, as always, and, and especially with the guest we have. So I'm excited for today. Oh, I am, a, I am super, super stoked. Uh, but before we get to our amazing guest, uh, why don't you tell me how Easter was for you? How was your w- Easter weekend? Beautiful. I mean, I, I spent Saturday doing a lot of work and uh, shopping with my wife, getting ready for our Easter feast on, on Sunday and uh, spoke and sang on, on Sunday. So Sunday was, uh, was nice. We had family over. How about you? What was your Easter like? Uh, similar. Thankfully, I didn't have to speak and uh, <laughs> spoke in church. Yeah, but we but we we did do some shopping for groceries and things on Saturday, and we had the family over for dinner on Sunday. It was really really nice. The weather was outstanding. It was a beautiful day. Beautiful. And uh, it's welcome after a long snowy winter to actually finally have some springtime temperatures here. I know. And I'm headed to San Diego tomorrow, and it's cooler. It's like cooler there now than it is. So I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> well, uh, I just, uh, you know, we could sit here and have a, a, a lot of catch up talk and so on and so forth. But I just want to get into it because me too. We have an amazing guest. So honored to have him. Uh, Fraser Bullock is joining us. And Fraser, he is currently the president and chief executive, chief executive officer of the Salt Lake City, Utah Committee for the Games, uh, which is seeking to host the games in Utah in 2030 or 2034. Frazier's been in this movement a long time. He started as the uh, chief financial and chief operating officer for the Salt Lake 2002 Games, which is where I first met Frazier. And he has remained active in the Olympic movement since then advising the IOC, advising various uh, hosts, uh, host cities, organizing committees. And he even received the Olympic order in gold from the International Olympic Committee for his, the service that he's rendered to to the movement well, uh, over well these deserved. past two plus uh, decades. Uh, Fraser also co-founder uh, and partner at Sorensen Capital, which is a private equity firm. Uh, and came uh, from Bain, uh, where he uh, started out his career uh, helping companies to survive and thrive. He's uh, he serves he's very uh, active in the investment community in Utah. He served on a, a number of boards, including the chairman of the board of uh, Omniture and Health Catalyst. Uh, gosh, inducted into the Utah Technology Council Hall of Fame in 2016 which is amazing. And uh, uh, his uh, bachelor's and master's uh, MBA, both from BYU, lives in Alpine, Utah with his wife, Jennifer, and five children. And uh, I am super excited to have Frazier and welcome Frazier onto our podcast today. So Frazier, welcome. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. Gosh. Well, it's fantastic to be with you, Frazier. And one of the reasons I wanted to ask you to come onto this podcast was because talking with so many of my colleagues and coworkers from Salt Lake 2002, 
it was really a seminal moment in our careers, not just working on the games, but the joy that we felt in working with this team, in this team that you created. When we talk about team performance, really the best example that I have in my entire professional life is working in Salt Lake uh, as, as part of the Salt Lake 2002 organizing committee. And so I, I'm really eager to dive into that a little bit more and learn about how you created this environment uh, that so many of us feel like it was really the pinnacle of our careers to work for Salt Lake 2002. It was an absolutely joyful experience. And so we want to really dive into that with you. But I, but before we, before we go, uh, Spencer, I feel like maybe I cut you off from a question. So I apologize if no, I, no, not, not it, at all. I think I, that I was just so excited. I wanted to, to, to jump in and, and, but no, keep going. You got start us off with the, with the question that you had. So, uh, you know, maybe you can just dive in a little bit here on that Salt Lake 2002 experience, how you created this culture, how you created what you call team DNA uh, that really helped the organizing committee, which is what which was in a difficult position uh, when you came in with MIT uh, and turned it into something that absolutely thrived. Well, thank you. Good to be with you. And when when I look at this particular situation, it, it really is applies to many, many other uh, enterprises. And just like you, Christian, hey, that was the pinnacle of your career. It was the pinnacle of mine. And whenever I talked to Mitt, he said, yeah, it was the best. And there are several elements that made it that way. One is we were engaged in a good cause because it is a unique unifying event to bring the world together under the umbrella of sport to celebrate human achievement. So having that good cause and that purpose, whatever your enterprise is, people need to understand and value that what they're doing is important. But when we walked into that situation in early 1999, it was a pretty dark place. The Justice Department was investigating the organizing committee relative to the bribery scandal and trying to determine if they were going to indict the organizing committee, let alone several of the people involved in the games. It was a frightening place to be and it was assaulted by the media on a daily basis where the media was looking for stories. There was a $400 million budget deficit and fundraising was frozen from sponsors. One of the CEOs of of a sponsor who is already a sponsor said, um, any CEO, and this is on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, any CEO who signs up to be an Olympic sponsor deserves to be fired. So that's what we walked into. Mitt said it was like stepping into an empty elevator shaft. So that's the context. And, and when you walk into that situation, where do you start? Well, you start with the people. And fortunately, there were already some really talented people there that had good expertise and capabilities, but we had many holes. Um, because we were just getting started, we had 222 people at the time, and we would build that when you include volunteers and contractors to 50,000 at games time 
but our core group would be about 1,200, 1,300 people. So we had to build a team. But then the other thing that, that I observed there when we started was very much a silo mentality where the different functional areas didn't talk to each other, that it was viewed that information is power and I'm not gonna give away any of my power by sharing my information. And in the Olympics, it's not six or seven functions that most organizations have, like sales, marketing, manufacturing, whatever. We had 42. And the importance of making sure that those 42 functional areas would be integrated and would operate together was essential. So that's the context, that's the background. Now, what did we do? We did immediately, we started breaking down the barriers between the silos. And we wanted to let people know that we were looking for team DNA, where your orientation is not focused on yourself or your particular function, it's focused on the team. And let me give you some examples of how I, did, how I worked with people. <clears throat> so I broke my own rule and I had 10 direct reports. I believe you should have six or seven max, but I had 10 and I would do weekly interviews with people and updates. And obviously we were in contact uh, all throughout the week, but we'd do a one-on-one -on -one every week. And I would start out uh, my one-on-ones with people by saying, how can I help you succeed in your job? What counsel do you need? What resources do you need? How can I help you? And then during the conversations, I would help that individual understand that for them to be successful, they needed to help others. I said, okay, John, for example, your job is to make Sarah successful. And John would say, what? My job is to do my function. I said, no, your job is to make that other person successful or these other people successful. And it was just kind of blew their minds of what that was. So I see you may well, want that, to ask- that was, that was my question, Frazier, is what was their response when you're, you're saying, hey, um, I, I, I'm here to, you're, you're setting the example exactly what you want them to do by helping them with their job. And yet you still found resistance. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Well, it was questioning because it was co completely counter to the way they had been educated within the business community. Okay, I've got my assignment. I've got my jobs. If I do that, I'm going to get good grades. Instead, I flipped it on its head. I said, yeah, we expect you to do that. But your number one thing is to make this person successful in their job where there was a particular deep interface or collaboration needed. And they would say, oh, what? And, and then I would say, let's talk about what we mean by that. So John, what is it that Sarah needs to be successful in her job? Well, she probably needs these two or three things. And I said, yeah, now how can you help her succeed in, in accomplishing those specific objectives? And it was a complete mindset shift where, okay, my job now is to interface with these other functional areas and make sure they're successful. And I'm gonna weave that into my plans. 
Um, and they understood that every time we had meet every week, I was going to ask that same question. How are you helping others succeed? And that would be my first question. But then I would also say, how can I help you in this journey? So that was one, and, and that's something I'd encourage everybody to think about. You want to, team DNA um, is partially inherited, but it's partially developed, where some people are naturally oriented towards teamwork, but even if they're not, you can cultivate it within a person by getting them to shift the way they think and the way they work. And the cool thing about this, and Christian experienced this, is that when you have that team dynamic, it changes everything. Instead of being protected of my area, there's something about us as human beings, when we're helping others, we feel better about ourselves. You know, I, there, there it is. Cut, cut you off, Fraser. I apologize for that. But it's, it's, it's so true. I have a client that is a CEO of a, a company here in Utah that is focusing on doing exactly what you just talked about. He's so caught up in, in the task, the day-to-day the -day job, that he wants to be able to spend more time with his direct reports because that's where he's fulfilled. But that's where he also perceives is the value to the future growth of the organization. But so few people really see that. I mean, I, I, I work with teams all the time, Frazier, and I, there's an organization I work with called Team Coaching International out of Sausalito. And for 30 years, they've been assessing teams worldwide. And less than 12% of teams are, are high performing. And I think part of the challenge is one of the things that you just talked about. We, we get that we need to spend time with our direct reports, but yet so many people are opposed or look at meetings as anathema and you're with 10 direct reports you're meeting with them every week how long did you do that and how much time did that take and and then for those of who are listening all over the world what's the payoff <laughs> well and it was it was an hour or more each week but during that time it was also coaching because people would come in to me and they would start and they would ask a question. Before they even finished half of their question, I knew what the question was. I knew what the three alternatives were and I knew what the best answer was. But how did I answer their question? Rather than imposing my opinion, I would say, well, what do you think? Because I'm training them to make decisions because when games time comes, everybody has to be able to be really good at decision-making. And so they would say, well, I think these are the three alternatives. And then I'd kind of coach them and walk them through it. I'd do it by asking questions. Well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the impact on this person? When I knew the right answer right off the bat, I would coach them through it so that over time, they became more and more confident in their abilities to think through alternatives, how they would impact other functional areas and other people and be able to optimize the selection of what path to go down. So I, I viewed these sessions and that's just one example. 
this, these were coaching sessions and how I would develop and grow the people. And um, the other element of that, it was also a personal relationship that wasn't just fabricated. People knew that, and, and I do this today, I love to help people. And it's not just in their jobs. Uh, one of the things I'm really well connected to is the medical community. And everybody has family members or friends that have medical problems and and they know they can come to me. And so my team knows they can come to me with no matter what problem it is. Uh, I'm there and I'm there beside them and I'm helping them go through a journey of health issues or financial issues or other issues where I can be of assistance to them. And that is, in my mind, a definition of a holistic relationship that is really team DNA. It's about the person. It's not about their job. Now, I have a couple of other things that we did that I would like to add um, in terms of this process of building team DNA. The first one is that we were very careful about ensuring that we had top level talent. That um, we scoured, I scoured the world to, to find people that not only had team DNA, but had exceptional talent. Because when you're building a team, if you have weak talent around the table, then you're going to have weaknesses and, and you have to spend more time shoring up those weaknesses then you're able to push the company forward. So I made sure that in each functional area out of the 42, we had somebody with prior games experience that was really talented, that knew that what he or she was doing to be able to propel us forward to success. So choosing world-class talent, finding that world-class talent that you can then develop into team DNA is well worth the investment. The people you hire and the people you develop are the foundation of the success of any organization. I got a question about that, Fraser, if I if I may, uh, mm -hmm. because on the one hand, it's it's easy to say, OK, we need to go out and get the best people. But you are operating under some constraints. Uh, number one, you had this bribery scandal context, which means that, well, maybe it's not an attractive position. Number two, by its very nature, this is a temporary job. You may work it for a couple of years and then the games are over and then people have to go find another job. Why would I give up a promising career with you know, company X to come over for a short-term engagement with the Olympic Committee. And number three, as you mentioned, uh, the budget was not overflowing. And so you couldn't pay people necessarily the absolute top of the line salary. So how did you overcome those challenges and still be able to bring really talented individuals into the organization? That's a fabulous question because the only guarantee I could give people is that they were going to get fired along me and everybody else, along with me and everybody else in uh, 2000 after the 2002 games and that's a hard one because people they're they have to interrupt their careers and is it worth it what we found is number one is the the olympic movement is very special and people want to be affiliated with something special 
that has meaning, that has purpose. And that can be in a regular corporation as well, as long as the purpose is clear and the opportunity to contribute to that purpose is meaningful. So we, we had that going for the Olympics is just, it's, it's a magnet. Um, the other thing is that the people understood that the environment that, that they were coming into after we had some time, like Mitt and I, when we first got there, and by, by the way, Mitt's the real deal. He is such a great leader and, and he brought humor, he brought um, focus and, and he was very strong. And so people were also attracted to working with Mitt. So having that iconic leader there is, is helpful to attracting people. But the, the word started getting out that this is really an exceptional place to live or to work, that uh, the team there, the work is, is very attractive. And so as we started ramping up, we had had enough time to develop the culture and the value that we placed on people and that they, people understood who were candidates that this would be a fantastic experience for them. But it, it took a little while to get there. Um, so as we selected these people, brought them in, taught the team DNA, started doing a lot of cr cross-functional training and activity and development, the other thing that happens in an organization that can be problematic and get in the way of team DNA, particularly in an organization with 42 functional areas, is decision-making. In most organizations, this is fuzzy. Who can make what decision when? And when you've got an organization that's literally got tens, well, we had 37,000 milestones that we documented that we had to go through to put on our games. And virtually every one of them had a bunch of decisions that had to be made. How do you set up an organization where, and I'll give you one example, where there's not the frustration of a lack of decision-making. So I went to a games, I won't name which one, this was after our games. And I saw one of our former employees and she was there and, and we were reminiscing and, and this was before the game started. Um, and, and I asked her, how was your experience of working with this organizing committee compared to 2002? She said, well, 2002 was an absolute dream. Here, it is so frustrating because we can't get any decisions made. And it's like, there's this balloon that has helium in it and we let it go hoping that a decision will get made and it just floats away and we never see it again. And that can be very frustrating to organizations where there's a lack of clarity around decision-making. And, and so one of the things that we did is we established our COR, which is a, a really a functional area, a change order request. Uh, is what it was, uh, where we'd meet every Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock. And, and if people needed a decision made, we would make it there 95% of the time. The 5% would probably be the next week because we needed more data. And people knew that they could come to that meeting and get a decision made, but they had to prep for that meeting. 
they had to invite the affected people of that or of that potential decision. They had to do their homework and present the data and have the data ready that we could all review before the meeting. And so we would go into that meeting and we might have 10 decisions that need to be made, needed to be made, but we had all the data, all the information. And so what could typically be a logjam in many organizations ended up being an opportunity to say, no, we've got a decision, let's go. And that is a responsibility of senior management to allow their people to uh, act and move ahead and not get hamstrung or hampered by red tape in an organization, because that's what will kill team DNA. People will get frustrated. They can't do their work. They can't succeed. They can't work with this other person over there. Decision-making is fundamental to moving the organization forward, keeping the morale up and having a defined process to make decisions is really critical. Yeah, so important, Fraser. And, and I mean, I love that you, you talk about it and it sounds, you say it's fundamental yet. And I'm sure the people that were on, on part of this other games were very smart. Why then, in your opinion, just from your experience, do some teams struggle with a letting go of, of some authority so people can, can create some, and you know their own initiative, and then bring that to a, a you know a deciding board, if you will. How do you do that? How do you get out of your own way? What is the problem that that some people are holding on to that power and authority? And and second, was there anything other than data and information that I, I imagine with thirty seven thousand milestones, you had a lot of decisions that had to happen. But and and I imagine that some people were were pretty good at getting their points across, and. Was it more than just the data and the preparation? Did you notice anything else that some of those people that were most successful in getting their decisions supported by this, this body that uh, maybe were different than others? Yeah, so let me start with the first question, which is one of the things that in decision-making, you wanna put structure around it and say, who can make what decision? And, and so in an organization, you say, okay, is it the VP? Is it the director? Is it the manager? Well, the manager can make this decision, these decisions. And the reason I, I think a lot of organizations don't do that and don't have well thought out decision-making processes is they haven't made the investment because it takes a lot of work to think through, okay, for this functional area at this level, you, you've got this green light, you can make decisions up to $25,000 of expenditures and in, in these kind of operational aspects. You have to spend the time and the effort making things clear. But when you do, it's like liberating everybody to be able to do their work. And then it climbs up the ladder such that there are a bunch of functions or a bunch of decisions that can't be made at particular functional areas, they need to be cross-functionally decided and that they're at a high enough level that they actually need to come up to my level. And that's where I would get together every week with these people to set an example, to show that decisions would be made, they'd be based on data, they'd be based on all, all the people involved. And, and now to answer your second question, yes, we wanted to make sure we had the data which would be cost data, operational data, things like that. 
but we would also in the discussion talk about how does this impact the different areas for example one of the things we really focused on was the athlete experience so uh, and and the athletes are the heart of the games we want them to have a great experience and so we would always ask the questions okay if we do this how is it going to affect the athlete and then we'd brainstorm a little bit and think through it and think okay they might be here at this point in time and might be food it might be transportation how will this better their experience so yes we had the data and but then we wanted to put it in the context of the experience of that particular area or uh function that was happening or the athlete and and that and and i'll tell you these meetings were so fun people loved coming to them because they knew they'd get a decision they knew or they'd participate in a decision um, because I would do the same thing. I knew what the answer was for pretty much every decision when I walked in the room. But I would ask people questions. Well, what do you think about this? What's the impact on that? Because by games time, we need to have every single individual be able to make big decisions at games time because at that point in time, we've got hundreds of thousands of people spread across uh, 10 plus venues and all kinds of operational um, things could come up and they had to be completely empowered, but they've now been trained through these different experiences and liberated to be able to do their jobs. Christian, I just got, I, I love the fact that people are liberated to do their jobs because so often they are literally handcuffed. And, you know, I'm actually going to San Diego, Frazier, to speak to a, a major worldwide organization on project management. And the, the subject of the topic that I'm speaking on is, is how you create volunteer engagement. And I love the idea. I mean, you just imagine a, a board for a chapter of this association. If every decision they made was how does this impact our members experience how does it impact their experience and think about when when we're thinking about what's in the best interest of of, of the games or the projects and we're not making decisions about us it's one of the very first things that you said is that you know it can't be the team dna can't be about me it has to be about about the team and in this case you're you're pointing those decisions to a greater cause. People feel good about that. People want to know what they do matters and that the, the impact that they're, that they're making is making the, just the, the, the world a better place. And that's fun. And I love that you pointed that out. And, and those meetings could be fun because when I first heard that, I'm like, uh, every Tuesday, man, I'd rather stick a you know, pencil in my eye. But people were actually looking forward to, to that. And I absolutely love that. I just wanted to highlight that and, and congratulations. That's, uh, that's the way it should be. Liberate your people, people. <laughs> exactly. Hey, uh, I want to I take off on what you just said, which is it should be fun. And I know that's been something that you've talked about a lot. Uh, it's an element that you identified in advance of this meeting as we were talking about different topics. And it's enjoy the journey. And, and so, uh, you know, an Olympic Games can be a very high-pressure environment. It's high stakes. It's very visible. The deadline is immovable. 
he can't tell the IOC, well, can we just do the games in 2003 because we're not ready? I mean, that doesn't happen. So, so that can be a very high pressure, challenging environment. So how do you turn around and actually make it fun for people, make it enjoyable so that, uh, like I've said before, we all come away from it thinking, gosh, that was the coolest thing I ever did in my life. That was so enjoyable. It was so fun. It was hard. I worked like 90 days in a row, but it was so fun. It was super enjoyable. So how do you get people to actually enjoy the journey, particularly in a very, very high pressure, high stakes environment? Fabulous question. So several ways. Number one, people want to be part of a winner. Um, and if you have the team and team DNA such that, and the planning is meticulous, which ours was, we knew we were going to succeed. People love being part of a winning team. I was asked by the IOC to visit another organizing committee of a little less than a year out before the games. And I went, and this is an international travel. And I interviewed people there because they're, they're in trouble. They knew they were going to fail. And it was like going into a depressed organization. I couldn't believe it. Nobody wanted to be there. It was horrific. Whereas we knew that we were ready. We knew that we were going to put on something exceptional for the, for the world. And when you have that underlying feeling of confidence and success, that spreads to everything else. So that's one element. You've got to have uh, capability and success. The second thing that uh, we did to have fun is is one of the, and I got this advice early on because I thought, oh man, this is going to be three years of hard work and I'm just going to be a slave, blah, blah, blah. But one of the people who was on our coordination commission from the IOC from Calgary, Roger Jackson, pulled me aside. Uh, he, he was involved in the 88 games in Calgary and said, you want to enjoy this journey. And that stuck with me. And so whenever we would have, typically we would go to events on weekends that sport events, because that was part of our job description. I would take family members with me. I would take friends with me and we would just go enjoy it. And members of our team would go. Um, I had three of my daughters volunteer, uh, become volunteers for the games. I bought tickets for my family to come to various events. Um, I kept a journal. I, I wanted my family to be engaged and involved in this in this journey, and it's a long journey. But the other way to make sure that it's enjoyable is that there is not this incredible pressure. Pressure is many times self-imposed by a lack of preparation and a lack of detailed planning and development. When you have great people doing great planning, putting all the pieces together, it uh, makes the job so much easier and more enjoyable. So by virtue of the great planning and the great people, we were able to kind of take some pressure off and be able to enjoy that experience. But along the way, it was very special to enjoy the experiences that were there. And one of the things that I did that I was encouraged to do in December before our games was to go on the torch relay. And I thought, I can't leave in December when our games are in February to go on the torch relay, but it was part of our games I went and it was the experience of a lifetime. 
I'll never forget. Um, and, and this was in Washington, D.C. with President Bush and Liz Glick, whose husband was lost in 9-11 just before our games. I'll never forget being on a ferry at night with the spouses of uh, 15 lost firefighters in 9-11. All the wives were there and we were on a ferry going past the Statue of Liberty and we passed the torch to each other and Mitt led uh, a song of God Bless America. And this was right after 9-11. And you could see the tears just flowing from the spouses of these of these wives who had lost their husbands in the Twin Towers. And um, it's, it's a visualization I'll never forget. Um, so enjoy the journey. Take the time out to uh, experience what you're doing such that you can create those special times and special moments. Christian, I have so many more questions, but I, I don't know if I want to kind of ruin the, 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 you know, that, that, that moment. I mean, I just, well, I do have one more story I want to tell before we end. Okay, good. So, all right, uh, let's, let's, let's go to that one, Frazier. <laughs> okay. So here we are, we start in a deep hole in early 1999. We put together our team. We put together our plans. We go through all of these decisions and, and we're building our way out of the hole and then we can start raising money because people see, okay, this is real. And, and I remember going into MIT um, the August before our games were to be put on. And I said, MIT, we're so ready. I think we're gonna hit this one out of the park. It looks like we're gonna make money, which games never, never make money. And he said, that's fine. Don't tell anybody, let's just manage expectations. And if we pull, if we just barely pull this off, it's a big success. So we were confident, I was confident. I said, okay, we're in great shape. The next conversation I can remember having was with Mitt on the phone as he's driving past the Pentagon right after it had been hit on 9-11, just four and a half months before our games. And what a day that was, a day of tragedy, horrific suffering, and all of our hearts sank. But then we started immediately getting questions, should we cancel the games? Can we keep the world safe and all these athletes and dignitaries from around the world? Well, we had just been knocked down again. We started in a hole, we just got knocked down again. We had to reassess our, our plans, fortunately, they were really strong. We, we spent a lot of time with the Secret Service and FBI and FEMA and military, making sure our security plans were rock solid. And we created some enhancements. So I remember going through that very intense period of time, making sure that we were gonna keep the world safe. Then I remember in opening ceremonies, being in the stands, watching the flag from the Twin Towers being brought in by uh, eight athletes escorted by the Port Authority of New York. 
and you could hear a pin drop in that stadium. And then hearing our national anthem sung as that flag is being held and thinking we've, not only did we survive 9-11, we're thriving in hosting a games that is going to help unify and heal the world at a time when it was very needed. The purpose became even more clear. And then we went on to 17 glorious days of competition, then the Paralympics. And at the end of it all, we had one of the most successful games in history. And Jean-Claude Keeley, a three-time gold medalist, said, Salt Lake, we will always remember you. These were perfect games. And so it was because we had a superb team in every way. Well, it was an honor, Frazier, to be a part of that team, a small part of that team. And uh, it was an amazing experience in my life. And I'm forever grateful uh, to you and to Mitt and to everybody else who who really made it happen all possible. Uh, I will just say in my own personal anecdote, uh, talking about the team DNA and breaking down the silos. I joined in early 2002, the spring of 2002, coming from IBM in the technology department, responsible for the workforce systems, all the volunteer management and, and all those systems that we put in place there. And the technology team sat on the 11th floor and the HR team Oh shoot! I'm no, you muted. I've been talking to the team. On the 11th I floor. No, no, We're, you're going the technology team yeah. on the 11th floor. Yeah. What happened there? I got muted. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, the technology team sat on the 11th floor, and the HR team sat on the 13th floor. The workforce people were up there, and so I approached my director and I said, "Would it be possible if I actually sat with the workforce people?" Because I think I could serve them better if I was embedded with them. And they said, sure, go up there. So I moved my office. (laughs) I moved from my cubicle on the 11th floor to the 13th floor so that I could be in a better position to help them. And that's the kind of the, that's the kind of organization it was. It was not a problem. Nobody there was like, well, no, you can't do that because you're part of the technology department. You're not part of the the, the workforce team or the HR team, but they let me move up there and ended up being a fantastic experience. And so uh, once again, thank you so much, uh, Frazier, for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to enlighten us on how, you know, and just give us a small introduction on on how to build a really successful team. I really appreciate you keeping, coming on and taking the time. If people have more questions about that, if they want to learn more about how you help not only build that team in Salt Lake, but you've helped other uh, organizations uh, develop their teams. Uh, and if they want to reach out to you, is there a, a preferred way that you would like them to contact you? <laughs> Through you, Christian. All right. <laughs> reach out to me then. <laughs> and you can reach that. out to me on LinkedIn. Just, you know, just look up Christian Napier on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Spencer, you've helped teams around the world as well, and you, you do such fantastic work. We've known each other for almost 20 years now. If people want to learn more about how you could potentially help them uh, develop a high-performing team, what's the best way for them to reach out and contact you? Thank you, Christian. Just on LinkedIn, Spencer Horn there on LinkedIn. And Frazier, thank you so much. What a great story. And 
hopefully you're you're out telling that story. I don't know if if people have asked you to, to come up and speak about that team DNA, but it is a it's a brilliant story, and I think it needs to be heard and told. And so hopefully people around the world will appreciate uh, when, all the wonderful lessons you shared today. Thank you. You're welcome. Good to be with you. And thank you, listeners and viewers. Uh, please uh, like and subscribe to our podcast. We will catch you again soon. Thank you so much.